Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have two very special guests. We have uh, Gwendolyn Dolsky. Uh, she's an author, speaker, and professor of philosophy at California State Polytechnic University. And we have Rudy Salo. He's an infrastructure and transportation finance lawyer, writer, actor, and public speaker. And Gwen and Rudy are both hosts of the incredible Good is in the Details podcast. Each episode is a conversation with experts from a variety of fields who can tell us more about what is the good life. Uh, welcome, Gwen and, and Rudy. Hi. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi there. <laughs> Hello again, as we, as we just saw each other about a week or so ago. I know, right? We should, uh, yeah, we have to find like a way to link the two episodes together because what I want to do is like a continuation of where we sort of left off. Um, so obviously we kind of started talking about our history and sort of our backgrounds, mm -hmm. but then we were also trying to figure out like how you guys got your podcast started. So, I mean, for people who don't know, the good is in the details podcast is essentially one of the top philosophy podcasts out there. Um, and then some, from what I little the little bit that I read about the background, it seems like when you started it and then Rudy, who's like the ultimate contrarian here and clearly hates philosophy somehow got on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, that's like a really interesting juxtaposition. So, Gwen, can you first tell us how you got the ball rolling? And then, obviously, Rudy, I'd love to hear your story on this. <laughs> Rudy's the contrarian. <laughs> I picked up Rudy because he has fantastic hair. Mm -hmm. But we, uh, but I really started with just the suspicion that the classes and the conversations that I was having with my students that there could be a broader audience for the discussions that we have in philosophy. So I'd have students who were emailing me long after the semester ended or even wanting to stay after class. They would talk about a film that they saw that reminded them of something we talked about, or they had some questions about their own life or own problems. And there were a lot of debates in philosophy about things like, do you have free will? Does God exist? Um, do you have a mind? What is real? So there were so many questions that the students were having and I thought, I, I don't want to keep this in the ivory tower. I just, I really believe in education. I believe in curiosity. I believe in dialogue. I think that that's part of what makes life good. I think that that's part of what makes life enjoyable. We don't really enjoy studying or being in a classroom so much and being quizzed, but I think we genuinely enjoy learning new things, having those aha moments. And so really the same skill set that I used to put a syllabi together is what I do to put the podcast together. And I just came to Rudy. I knew that Rudy liked to do public speaking. He's also a very curious, witty, intelligent individual. And so I thought that it would be a lot of fun for us to do this. Oh, wait, just, mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought it'd be a lot of fun. And I am so grateful to Rudy for believing in it, you know, because Rudy's like a proper adult. He's like, I don't, big, I don't even know what that means. I know he's like I think the only criteria is having good hair he has yeah he is amazing he has so much on his plate and I'm just like you know and I have this idea and I just appreciate him having faith in that idea that he said he was on board because really I think he's part of the magic of it that if I get too nerdy about philosophical concepts he is really great in introducing his own set of you know knowledge from law but also film noir he also loves science fiction and he also has a great wit and i think it just works nicely together all right so rudy I, I'm, I'm almost i'm almost speechless but that's actually impossible because i always have something to say it's very kind <laughs> I, I was on a phone call uh, gwen reached out once to me and was 
I mean, she had had another podcast. I don't think things went well there. She knew that I was a student of podcasting and was very passionate about podcasts. At the time, I was a transportation contributor to an automotive podcast because I'm a transportation junkie. I mean, I just, I love, I mean, you can read any of the writings that I did. I I don't need to get into it here, but you can go back and listen to uh, episode two of Good is in the Details. And it kind of lays out my philosophy of importance of transportation and society. And I mean, that's what I do for my day job. And just Gwen reached out. She's like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this new podcast. Would you, you know, want to be a guest, uh, occasional guest host? You know, would you be a supporter? I just told her, absolutely. Um, I was, I believed in her wholeheartedly, uh, how smart she is and, and she, she, she's funny and, 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 and she's very, you know, uh, willing to talk to a crazy person. She talks to crazy people very well. And that's because <laughs> I'm referring to myself. And I just thought it was a great idea because what I realized in, this is no dig on my prior podcast experience, but I felt <clears throat> very boxed in, um, there's only so much you can you can do as a transportation contributor on an automotive podcast. Like you kind of you, you repeat the same things over and over again, and I, and I really did feel like I was kind of boxed in. And I'm, I guess the the kindest word I could say about myself is I'm a dynamic person, and the reason why is because I'm just a big nerd. I, I love to learn, and while I am passionate about transportation, that's only a sliver of of me. What I'm really passionate about is learning. And as much as I beat the hell out of philosophy and philosophy teachers and philosophy students and all that stuff, philosophy is really the love of learning. I mean, I, that's, that's, my, that's what I've come to learn after being on Good as in the Details is you're constantly learning. Well, the reason why is because you never get any damn questions answered. <laughs> and, and as a result of that, I think I have found my home in, in philosophy and, and with this podcast, because I really do love to learn. I, I, I with, with a passion. And in fact, one, one of the things that I love about film and acting, especially writing, is whenever you're going to write a, a film, if you're going to write, if you're going to write like a, you know, a plot line or something about the film, you really got to get into the details of characters' lives. And okay, well, this person is a is a mechanic. Okay, well, what kind of a mechanic? Okay, well, this person is a boat captain. Okay, what kind of a boat captain? And you've got to get like really deep down into the details in order to find those little nuggets to make sure that the film has authenticity. And so if you're, if you truly are a student of learning, um, it's just like endless. There's so many things that you can do with your life. And so I am a student on Good is in the Details podcast. I'm, I'm learning as I'm going along with it because I love learning. And so Gwen is the teacher. I am the student. I just happen to be that annoying student that constantly talks shit back to the professor. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> no, absolutely. And in fact, uh, speaking of film, uh, I actually, I did a deep dive on both of you. And uh, Rudy, you in particular, I, I saw some of your uh, short films. Uh, via oh, your you, watch, you, you watch those? Oh, man. I watched oh, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sang- God, God bless you, one. man. Yeah, God yeah. Bless Curtain you. call. Yeah, yeah. So Fortune Cookie, Right. That one was very interesting to me. Was that a philosophical uh, sort of a a film? Uh, Because I wonder if it has any ties to that. It it was very interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, first of all, thank you for watching it. And thank you for watching (laughs) anything that I'm in. It is so much appreciated. Fortune Cookie, yes, is absolutely philosophical. And here's the reason why. Um, 
yes, I starred in Fortune Cookie. Yes, I wrote it and I, I directed it and I produced it. The character, all characters, whenever I write, it's usually has have some extension of me. I am a control freak who doesn't do well with ambiguities. It's very obvious. Oh my God. I was going to ask you that question before yeah. Alan said that. I was going to be like, Rudy, do you struggle with ambiguity, man? hundred <laughs> percent. And, that, uh -huh. and that's, that's wow. the running, the running joke yeah. on good as in the details is uh -huh. wait, what, what, there's no answer. I, I didn't really realize that when I wrote fortune cookie, it didn't, I didn't have any intent to, to be philosophical. What happened was one day I looked at my desk at work. And I noticed, this is going to sound crazy, but it's okay. I keep telling you people I'm crazy. I noticed I had a stack of about 50 to 70 fortunes that I saved from, it was a Panda Express that I was eating too much at. This is when, this is when I didn't eat very, eat very well. And I spent too much time focusing at work and, and Panda is really easy to go to. Mm -hmm. I noticed I was saving these fortunes and I noticed that I was actually reading them occasionally. And I think that I was doing that for some kind of a comfort, like whenever I would feel down, I would go look at these good fortunes and I would get some answers. Of course, I would plug in the answers there, right? That's the whole point of fortunes is right. they tell you something and then you go, oh yeah, this means X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And then that triggered fortune cookie. It was, it was my way of trying to exercise control over whatever I was dealing with at that time. And I just kind of made up the character and the, and the movie went forward with that. Um, it was a very wonderful experience doing fortune cookie while, um, we were in COVID. It was just me and a bunch of amateur actors and, and, you know, the first part of COVID acting and production shut down and a buddy of mine said, Hey man, I'm really bummed out. Like, don't you write, do you have something that we can just throw together really quickly? And I said, yeah, dude, I got this, I got this film fortune cookie that I, that I wrote and I sent it to him and he said to some actor buddies and we filmed it and it was while we filmed it, that's very, very interesting. It took over a year to get it edited and everything because number one, it almost got burned down in the Lake Tahoe fire because the, because the Whoa. master was, uh, was, was the, the, the guy's parents literally went to uh, their house in, in South Lake Tahoe and grabbed the computer and some last minute things before like their house almost burned down. And then lo and behold, a month later, our editor musician, got carjacked in San Francisco and he lost wow. a bunch of the materials. And so it was just, it's just kind of funny how like the, the underlying message of the, of the movie is you have no control like <laughs> over any, no matter what you think that you have control over, you have no control over anything. Mm -hmm. And that actually happened with the production of the movie as well. So I'm, so thank you for, for, for asking and, and watching it. Of course, man. Well, and then Gwen, how about your level of philosophy? Where did that stem from? Honestly, it was, I think it was my second semester of university and I took a philosophy course and I just fell in love with it. I, it's all I wanted to do. I knew that I had to, I just had to read more of it. And it wasn't until I think my graduate years where I became introduced to existentialism and then I became obsessed with that. But there's something about reading really great works. This can be of literature or of philosophy where I personally just kind of felt this, the, a calling. I, I don't know how else to explain. I felt the most alive when I was working on reading these texts and this sense of gratitude that I had the opportunity to read some of the most brilliant minds in history. And 
with with Rudy's film Fortune Cookie. After I watched it, I happened to have been teaching a class where we were reading Simone de Beauvoir's short story, The Woman Destroyed. And I told him that's what I then got out of his film was from Simone de Beauvoir's point of view, the, the Woman Destroyed is really a story about a woman who has lived her life according to everybody's standards about what she perceived to be a good life. And she was also very much trapped in a gender role, which Beauvoir writes a lot about. And then at the end, the woman needs to decide how she's she's terrified because she has freedom. She's been released from all of these ideas about what it means to be a woman and what she does with that freedom. We just know she ends it by saying, I'm just terrified. I'm afraid. And it was reminding me so much of when Rudy in his short, this question of if we're set up with all of these rules, what do we do when we actually let go of them? And I think that that's why in my later studying, why I fell in love with existentialism, because traditional philosophy is all about rules. It's all about structure. It's all about logic. It's all about universals. And then here these existentials come along and they throw that to the wind and mm-hmm. just say, what does it mean to be human? And how do mm-hmm. we deal with that? And it's messy. And people don't want to talk about it because there are no conclusions. But I really like that because there is this moment. Actually, Camus wrote this. There's this moment he says in, in um, one of his books, I think it's The Myth of Sisyphus, where he says, the absurd can strike anyone on a street corner. And it is that moment where you just realize that like it is your life and there are no rules and you can do what you want. You are free to do what you want. And with that comes this nervousness, but you kind of want that because that means you are responsible for your future. When you don't have any kind of anxiety, that means because you don't perceive any kind of responsibility. And so I think that there is this good notion of anxiety that comes with freedom. Anyways, I'm kind of going off on a tangent about what I love about philosophy, but I totally fell in love with the existentialist for that reason. It made me feel alive and it just felt so useful for how we structure our everyday lives. Yeah. And what I love so much about it, to quote somebody who's coming in our podcast in a couple of weeks, Sky Cleary. Um, so if you look at just, I mean, the major philosophies, and there was a pretty notable book that came out a couple of years ago, obviously, a bunch of guests that we had on from it, How to Live a Good Life. And so like a lot of the authors had really great conceptions of what the good life is. I mean, you know, it's based on their own kind of different schools of thought in terms of philosophy. But what I loved so much about Sky's chapter was it was essentially like guideposts. She was like, look, man, if you're thinking to or you're looking to existentialism to tell you what to do, it's just not going to happen. We don't really have answers per se. We, I love Rudy Shaker inside, right? So we have like, you know, these sort of big picture ideas of where you could go and questions about what you should think about, uh, sort of, you know, you think about what's sort of meaningful to you. What does it mean, obviously, to create a life full of like freedom and sort of an extravagance in some way, um, a life that's, uh, let's say, you know, kind of bountiful, right? Bountiful and whatever that kind of means to you. And I love that because here's this person, and obviously it's not just Sky, it's kind of the field in itself, existentialism. But here are these people who are like, hey, man, you know, we're just humans, right? Mm -hmm. We could kind of give you sort of understandings that we could give you sort of, um, 
kind of ways to look at the world or ways rather to think about the world, but we can't actually tell you what's right. And sometimes, especially if you're going to go back into like the history of philosophy and you look at somebody like Plato who had these sort of absolutes, which obviously, I mean, are bullshit. There's no such thing as forms. I mean, objective sort of even morality <laughs> isn't necessarily even a thing, right? Um, so if we think about it that way, I really like the kind of humility there. And that always kind of struck me about existentialism that even though as big and as famous as kind of like as intelligent as these people were, they always knew their limits. And I always appreciated that about them. All right, Rudy, you had a, you had a thought. Go for it. it uh, I mean, on that, I mean, <clears throat> on that very point, trying to find a tenet of philosophy, whether it's existentialism or whether it's stoicism, right? And we, we, Gwen and I touched upon this on an episode where it was called Understanding Anxiety, where we had a, a psycho, um, psychologist come on. And I asked the question because from my own experience, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, you know, started reading Marcus Aurelius and try to try to apply the tenets of stoicism to, you know, my OCD, you know, me losing my, my head on the whole yep. thing. Whereas the reality is I suffer from anxiety, period. I do. So, you know, stoicism is not going to solve that problem. But I asked the question, you know, what, what do you think of, of, of patients uh, coming in and asking you uh, about and this is to the to this psychotherapist, you know, should they apply uh, stoicism in order to address their anxiety? And I mean, it, and, you know, basically, at the end of the day, it was just kind of like, but those are just those are just guideposts. Like, yeah, in certain situations, should you be calm and just kind of, you know, take it as it comes? Um, I'm being very, very simplistic here with stoicism. Yeah, sure, that would be good. But we're all biologically different. We're, we're all made up differently. Like some people are more prone to anxiety and anxiety attacks and stoicism is, you know, while it's great and it look, looks good on a coffee table, it's not going to solve all of your problems. And philosophy is not there for you to solve all your problems. It's just for you to kind of try to live a better life, I suppose. I, I know I'm replugging our podcast again, but, 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 but really, I mean, somebody tell me if I'm wrong, but I mean, that is one of the goals of philosophy is just to live a little bit better. It's not going to tell you how to actually live your entire life. Am I wrong or am I right about that? I think that I think that comes from Socrates. That comes from the apology from his trial that one of the things that I've always thought was so fascinating and so interesting is that when Socrates was on trial, that in part when he's explaining why he's on trial, for being annoying, which I always say that's why he was executed for being annoying. <laughs> that's what happened. But there was an oracle who said there was no one wiser than Socrates. And upon hearing that news, he didn't say, yay, good for me. He wanted to inquire into what that meant. And so to understand the meaning of the oracle, he had to go out into the world and dialogue with others. And that's also one of the reasons why I value philosophy and I value, you know, what we do. And I like podcasts in general for this reason. And I enjoy teaching for this reason is that when you dialogue with others, you will understand the truth about yourself, that there is so much to come from it as opposed to just retreating from the world. Now, I'm not anti-meditation or anything like that, but I think the fact that Socrates uncovered the truth of what the Oracle meant through dialogue is very important. I think that's significant. Yeah. yeah, and, and he said that's what it meant to be good. That was also the moral life. The moral life was to learn. So the moral life is also. I'm sorry, I just realized that. No, sure. Part of Rudy, part of Rudy's question was that what does it mean to be a good man? This is uh, something that Socrates was talking about because during his trial there was this question of you know where he was being rhetorical and saying some of you might say, "Aren't you ashamed for doing what you've done that this might cause your death?" 
And he responds by saying no, because what makes a life worth living and what makes a life worth living is not the question of life or death focusing on the body, but it is on focusing on, did I act rightly? Did I act justly? And that that is what determines um, a life or a man of worth. I'm saying man specifically, I'm not being gender friendly because he meant, he meant men, but yeah. Um, that's, you know, we, no one's perfect, <laughs> yeah. but that's part of the, the moral life is to be curious because that means that you are respecting the possibilities of the soul. And at the same time, you're not claiming to have divine knowledge. So you are being humble and you are also inviting growth. And so morality and curiosity for the ancient Greeks go hand in hand. And I think that Rudy, you're right. That's partly what it means to live life well, both to be happy and also to be good in a moral sense. So on our episode with you guys, um, which it'd be great to do some kind of a you know, connection between the two, we ended it with me being a narcissist. Now, <laughs> now Gwen just brought me kind of around full circle by calling me moral because of my curiosity. Thank you, Gwen. You rescued me. You just, mm -hmm. you just seriously just rescued me. I know. And we just thought you had great hair. It turns out you're like also a good guy. <laughs> wait so okay rudy i have a kind of a tough question for you then so okay and just in terms of philosophy right um so let's say i will take for granted that there are no sort of objective answers here for the most part right but what about the fact that we can't really escape it right so like in the search of justice or in the search of truth in the search of even like what a potential afterlife is is there such thing as a divine whatever right so i mean do you think it's kind of lazy to say like oh, okay we should just throw our hands up because these answers don't exist because you know or is it so that like you know as, as long as kind of human beings exist, these questions are always going to be sort of persistent and they're always going to kind of be petulant in a way too. That's bad. He set me up. He set me up really <laughs> well. He basically, what he asked me is, do I think philosophy students and philosophers are lazy? Um, that's very, <laughs> very, it's a very interesting question. I, no, no, they're not lazy. You want to know why? Here's the reason why because they will continue to read and they will continue to study other philosophers, I think in order to try to answer the question. I, I think that's an un, I think it's unfair to paint philosophers as, and I'm not saying that you did, I'm, I'm referring to myself as, as being like, oh, there's no answers, you bunch of lazy asses, what's the matter with you people? Figure it out and move forward. Uh, that's the lawyer side of me uh, coming out. Um, I actually think philosophers work really, really hard. When you, when you listen to Gwen and when she mentions these names of these philosophers and, and, the, and their writings and everything, it's an incredible about how much time she has spent reading. I mean, look at those books behind her. Behind her. <laughs> she, has spent, she, she has spent a, a godly amount of time reading, I think maybe to try to, come close to answering whatever questions Gwen is trying to figure out in her own personal life. I think that's one of the reasons. Sure, I'm sure there's some curiosity and I know that it's her day job to be a philosopher, but I, I, I do think that, that she is working hard to try to answer those questions. But unlike me, she is, okay. she is better with ambiguity. I'm not very good with ambiguity. And that is because I'm, you know, I just have these, you know, mental issues. I, I need answers. And, <laughs> and I, and I, I, you know, that's just the way I am. But no, I, I do think that that philosophers work hard 
Um, hopefully no, nobody will ever, you know, hold this against me on a future episode where I'm going to continue to bash philosophy and philosophy uh, students and philosophy teachers, but I think they actually work their ass off. That, that's what I think. And then Alan to set you up here. So oh, what, wow. what what this kind of made me think of is like, um, so there's this really great documentary on Warren Buffett. And then so like for anybody who knows anything about Warren Buffett, I mean, he doesn't really deal with people. It's not his thing. He's like, so he's actually a lot like Rudy. His whole concept of like people is they're too difficult. It doesn't really matter how smart you are. You actually, you'll never understand them and you'll never really figure it out. So what's the point, right? Just work with numbers. Numbers are safe. Numbers are sort of, you can extract meaning from them, right? You can understand sure. them, right? So for you, so Alan kind of has this great way of applying philosophy to understanding people, which I really love. So, you know, I mean, we can think about just like ultimate truths and whatnot. And then in some way, yeah, you know, it, we wouldn't like find fault with the person who throws his or her hands up and says, you know, screw it, we'll never figure them out anyway, right? But you can actually apply philosophy in a great way to relationships, right? Like when you're talking about understanding other people, and obviously creating a harmony between them. So can you tell us about that? Oh, sure. Uh, you, you, you're referring to seeking first yeah. to understand than to yeah. be understood. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, yeah, if anyone's a stranger to that concept, uh, yeah, essentially, people feel better when you try to show that you understand their perspective, right? You, you, I, we talked about this actually on our last podcast, uh, on our interview. Um, yeah, uh, steel manning, for example, is part of that, right? Where you might say back to them what it is that you understood. Right. And then they feel understood by you and therefore feel like more trusting of you and want to communicate back with you. Right. right? But actually something I wanted to add a little. Yeah. Something else uh, to Rudy, what Rudy said. So um, I think there's a use, there's a usefulness to putting uh, labels on things and trying to structure things in a way that uh, is logical and, and makes sense. But at the same time, uh, I feel like labels can be limiting in a way. Like, for example, if, uh, let's say I just the concept of uh, Rudy Salo or the the concept of Gwendolsky, right? I mean, even if I like wrote your names down, I know that that's referring to you guys. But does that does that word or does that label necessarily encapsulate all that's you? Like the the ineffable nature of who you really are, all of your experiences, sense perceptions, current perception of everything that's happening. I mean, I couldn't really capture that with i mean it's useful right i mean i could know who i'm talking about right or if i'm referring to a label of about something maybe a concept in philosophy or psychology you name it but then there are some things that it's almost impossible to capture in a label and that's why you almost have to surrender to this uh mystery right of, of what somebody is or or what life might be or what is the good life and and so on. Right, right. I, I don't know. What, you're saying, what you're, you saying, you're saying, yeah, the ambiguity is sort of inherent. Yeah. I mean, uh, for example, uh, the concept of an apple or the concept of, of honey, right? If, if I have an apple, I know that it's an apple, you know, or I'm pointing to an apple, but I can't really know the apple unless maybe I take a bite and, and try it, right? right. Uh, or maybe that's not even really knowing the apple either. I mean, that's not necessarily knowing it, but now I'm just kind of... See, you guys see, you guys starting to lose me. See, you started yeah. asking questions like, what's an apple and stuff like that. That's when I want to start banging my head up against this wall over here. You, see, you, guys, that's, that's me. you can take a bite out of Rudy to see. <laughs> I, I, the hair. No, I'm just what, what, what was interesting was when, when you said our names, oh, well, he is Rudy Sallow or he, she is Gwen Dolsky. I mean, that... That's that's a lot more of a, a broader, right? Because when you say Rudy Sal, that that's what I think is like. 
that's my whole life. That's my life history. I talk a lot about my life history. Same thing with Gwen and, and when you say Gwendolyn Dolsky. Now, if you say the words, oh, he is a lawyer or, oh, she is a teacher or, oh, he is an actor or, oh, she is a writer. I feel like those are like, yeah, okay. That's one small part of me that, that, that there's more to that. Like when you say those words, lawyer, writer, teacher, there's a universal concept of what, well, well, well okay. Everyone knows what, what, what lawyers do and what teachers do mm-hmm. versus Rudy Sallow or Gwen Dolsky. Like that, that's just automatically subjective because saying my name, my name is my life. Like that's, that's, you know, I've always been since birth that that's what I've been. Um, so the funny story about that is my mom didn't know that my dad was going to name me Rudy Sala. She thought she, he, she thought my name was going to be Anthony. And then all of a sudden my name, Rudy, the name Rudy showed up on the birth certificate. That's a whole other side story. Uh, but, but, but uh, yeah. I, I find labels, labels like, um, career choices, right? When you talk about a career choice, um, that can really box you in. And that's, we talk a lot about that on Good as in the Details podcast. We talk a lot about how the changing of, of, of what you are career-wise and how the internet kind of threw everything for a tizzy and, and, and you know, our concept of retirement, our concept of professionalism, our concept of, well, what does it mean to work in an office? And, and, and like, we're in this flux right now that, that I don't even know if labels will mean anything anymore because our because the way the world works and the way we work as a society is ever changing and I think the pandemic kind of threw the light on that 100 I um don't know if I necessarily answered any of the questions there but I I was just trying to talk about labels in general and how right now as a result of the internet as a result of COVID-19 a result of all the things that have been upended I I don't even know if labels are going to mean anything I'm well, going kind of, to jump in. Is it okay please, if I jump in? Please, I, was just gonna, please, yeah. I was just going to say you kind of proved Alan's point because you have multiple personalities. <laughs> well, that's one of the things I really, just to draw from existentialism that I really loved is that one of the things that they rejected was the notion, it'd be interesting what you think from a psychology point of view, but the notion of a human nature, they actually rejected it. And um, even that the definition that Aristotle gave of what does it mean to be human is that man is a rational animal. And that that wasn't really enough. And they they defined the human as as free and perpetually in flux and that you learn what you are in situation. And Mm -hmm. that that freedom of going outside the definition is precisely what makes the human being the human being. And that's something that's very cool. I mean, you can wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm going to learn Sanskrit. And just all of a sudden, that is a new part of who you are. Um, you can say, I'm going to run a marathon. And then all of a sudden you become a runner. And one of the beautiful things about being human is that there is nothing that is confining us. We like, we get comfortable with labels and with being confined just to reference the woman destroyed again. That was one of the things that the main character was very, very comfortable in being wife and mother. And those rules ended and then she did not even know how to live because she had completely defined herself according to other people in her life. And they all outgrew her and she stayed the same, almost like an object. She didn't change at all. Um, so that would be the difference between an object and a human being is that the object has its definition like the apple. 
Whereas a human being is constantly in flux. And we also have a lot to learn about ourselves. I mean, we don't know in the next 10 years, if an event, then we will also find out more about what kind of a person we are in a different situation. Mm-hmm. We'll grow to be a different person. We'll redefine ourselves over and over again. And that's part of the beauty of being human. And I would say also like with, you know, with labels, I can't even tell you how many times somebody has said to me, you're a professor, you don't look like one. And I'm not Mm. sure what I'm supposed to look like. I mean, I am Mm. a study philosophy, but I know that the reaction from, from men, for instance, like if I'm at a cafe and I'm reading, you know, some literature and it's got a, a heavy label on it where a man will look at it like pass by the table and look at the book and be like, whoa, I'm like this look of like little lady, why are you reading this giant book where people have this conception of, let's say what a philosopher would look like. Um, and I think that a lot of that is breaking down for, uh, for many, many professions. And that's actually very cool to see. Wow. There's a lot of things I want to tackle there. Well, you know, the first thing that you reminded me of is Sartre in a way. Uh-huh. I, know, I know you brought up Simone de Beauvoir, but uh, Sartre, uh, I believe, said um, uh, existence precedes, no, sorry, being precedes mm-hmm. essence, right? Like I am comes before I am this or that, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, what what's interesting about that is that I feel like that ties into this whole label thing, right? I mean, essentially, people are, uh, sometimes their their identity is formed in reaction, right? Like there is this concept of uh, the man of, if I remember correctly, now I'm digging back into like college brain right now, but uh, there was, I believe this is uh, Nietzsche. Uh, yeah. Uh, the man of resentment. There's like a person mm-hmm. who exists as a no to everything. And then that person gets their whole identity formed by resisting everything that happens in their life, like living in reaction to everything. And then there's another man, there's another version of a person or man, uh, which is uh, the man of uh, resentment, who actually takes like proactive action in order to sort of uh, design their, not necessarily design the reality, but that's my understanding of it. And I find that's, that's very interesting too, just to kind of tie that to what you said. And there's, a, there's so many things pop up though that I want to discuss too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like a lot of ideas come up. Also the, the age of the internet, right? In, in a way, I can see how you're saying that these labels or structures are sort of breaking down because in a way, especially with the advent of podcasting, uh, a lot of the gatekeepers that existed for uh, certain types of knowledge or entertainment, you name it, for that to sort of uh, come out, uh, be exposed to people, they, they're not really there anymore, or or they are, but those structures are kind of falling apart. Before there were however many networks available that might might host somebody, like I don't know, um, I don't know if PBS is a good example, but let's say before podcasting, if there was PBS or another or Discovery or something where they might have a documentary and then have an educator on to maybe speak on a certain subject or whatever. That was usually how maybe a professor or a philosopher or, or you name it might get exposure to like a bigger audience, right? Uh, but then YouTube podcasting, all of that came out and changed the game completely, which is which is what's amazing about your podcast and podcasting in general. So, oh, okay, you guys yeah, are going to... And it raises a, it really, it re- raises a question, yeah. right, about... I mean, look at the state of our, of our country, look at the state of a lot of, of the fighting that's going on and, and, and how people are becoming even more entrenched in their ideas and not listening sometimes to the other side and, you know, the, the blues and the reds, everything that's going on in this country that I 
constantly worry about and thinking. It's like, were we ready for the internet? Were, should there still be gatekeepers? I mean, the, the, those are the philosophical questions that I like to think about, right? I, I, I think incessantly about, well, gee, maybe there were gatekeepers, maybe, maybe having free access to all the information in the world or being, uh, being able to, 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 to pick and choose the information that we want in order to, you know, for confirmation bias purposes, maybe that wasn't a good thing. Um, yeah. Much like, much like everything in human existence, you know, things will get bad, they will get worse, they'll work each other out, and then we'll move on as a society going forward. But that's the type of stuff that I like to think about. Um, not, not, not trying to be a downer here. I just, I, yeah, I, I worry about society. I'm with you on this, actually. So I'm not an Alex Jones guy at all, but his show, right? It was called Infowars. And what's interesting about that title is that's essentially what's sort of happening, right? There's a sort of an info war. There's like this war for the controlling. Are you paradigm. literally promoting Alex Jones on our podcast? <laughs> I am not. How did you get that from that? You know, I'm I just trying to use that term. You know, we 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 left wing liberal podcasters. Sure, let's let's throw a bone to Alex Jones every once in a while. Okay, sure, but that's okay. But my point though is essentially that you know there's sort of this uh, like fight for the controlling paradigm in a way, right? Like since now it's sort of a free for all with all these different uh, like sh let's say podcasts or shows or uh, YouTube, whatever or media. Th essentially, uh, they're fighting for as many views as possible, doing whatever they can clickbait this, this sort of marketing, blah, 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 blah. And because of that free-for-all, it's very chaotic, right? And I kind of connect with you on that because it's like maybe there were gatekeepers for a reason before. Uh, and then there's so many pros and cons to this sort of, you know, quote unquote, brave new world, right? But who knows, maybe there's a next step or there should be a next step. I just can't see what that paradigm would be, but maybe there's something that'll bring a little levity to the chaos but that could be just like this idealistic you know hopeful view of the future some people don't share that so. okay and since you mentioned idealism you guys are going to hate me um so when it comes back to the question of, of human nature so so unfortunately with the existentialists as wonderful as they were um the way that they kind of just like with sartre the way that he kind of conceived freedom and the same way they kind of conceived human nature is like this sort of uh bountiful uh kind of void of possibility is actually not true um and then so unfortunately when it comes to human nature there is a human nature it's not one particular essence which is, is really really nice but when you're looking at like something like twin studies they're really kind of awesome because they really tell us what it's like in different environments when you have the different with the same sets of genes or very similar sets of genes so what unfortunately happens is a lot of the times is that you'll have people like again if you separate twins out you'll have like let's say one kid in a kind of disturbed home where let's say uh, i don't know um let's say maybe there's a lot of abuse going on trauma etc and then you'll have like let's say they're twin and you put them in kind of another home that's almost completely disparate from that one and they end up with the same kind of mental health picture which like obviously really sucks um and then so what you kind of see is that a lot of times even though obviously it's great and i love okay so i want to be really careful how i say this because so on the left there's this sort of idea that behavioral genetics is bullshit and there's this idea that behavioral genetics is inherently um pretty much all of the isms uh it's sort of misogynistic it's uh you know sort of every phobia that you could kind of think of i just i don't really necessarily think that's true especially because the science and the data really are what they are and if you think about even something like let's say like um 
with like trans people, right? So trans people will never tell you that, you know, oh, well, this is just like, there's a void in human nature that I just, you know, woke up one day and I decided, well, I'm going to be trans. It's not really like that. The idea there is that there's some sort of inherent genetic disposition toward it. And again, we see this with kind of mental health pictures as well. So again, even though I love the notion that existentialism has, and there is some variability. So if you look at like the big five factor model of personality, you can see that, let's say with psychotherapy, with other interventions, let's say good friendships, good social circles, people change on those on like each spectrum on each dimension. So if somebody, let's say is highly neurotic, they could go back a couple of points. If a person is very low on extroversion, they could kind of go up a, po a couple of points, etc. But for the most part, what you see is that temperaments are pretty much inborn. And even though they do fluctuate over a lifetime, it's nowhere near sort of, again, this existentialist notion of, well, I could just become and be whoever I mm -hmm. want. It's nowhere near that simple. But I mean, again, what's cool about it is that even though there is a temperament, there are certain environments that you could put people in, and then obviously they will improve and they'll get better. But the thing is, it's like, so just to kind of give you like a nutshell of what the mental health picture could look like. So let's say if we're thinking about the DSM-5 criteria, and let's say you have a kid who has like generalized anxiety disorder. So let's say that kid goes through a course of therapy, let's say maybe eight weeks, to, I don't know, a couple of months, right? So maybe three, four months, whatever it is. And so even though that kid will not meet the criteria for generalized anxiety anymore, if the therapy is successful, obviously, and even probably with medication too. Um, so, but the point there is, is that when we're looking at the spectrums on neurotic, that kid is still going to be above average in the neurotic spectrum. So he or she may not, like, again, you may not be able to diagnose them with the generalized anxiety or whatever it is, but the thing is, they're still going to be high in neuroticism, which shows that there is such a thing as human nature. Again, it's not ubiquitous in the sense of like, let's say every man is like this and every woman is like this. No, that's just silly, right? It's way more complicated than that. But there is such a thing as inborn temperament. And I really do think that we have to take it seriously. Oh, so. yeah. I, I, you know, I always, um, I mean, I tell my students whenever we're going over existentialism to keep in mind that this is long before we understand brain science, right. or genetics or things like that, when they're when they're coming to those. Um, wait. Okay, when they're Rudy has yeah. to go, right? <laughs> yeah, Rudy it was a pleasure having you on. Take care. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that that we have to we have to take um, factor in those things. One of the things that um, I do wonder about, though, when it comes to the science, and I'm glad you said like it's not ubiquitous. Like if you were to say all men are X, it's right. going to be very difficult to fill that in, or all women are X. So I wonder if part of the labeling didn't have. I mean, I don't wonder. I think <laughs> I think the labeling that had to do with um, the way in which human nature worked was that it was all to reinforce a power structure. So mm -hmm. saying all women are X or all African-Americans are, or anyone who is Asian is that those labelings were done in such a way in order to maintain a power structure. Right. Because they didn't consider because not every human was looked at in the same. Right, right. And I love that you mentioned that because that sort of harkens to, crim uh, to criminal, uh, to critical race theory. So the idea is there's so much truth in sort of these left wing ideas. But I mean, I just I wish there were a way where sort of the two kind of not even the two sides, because we're not even talking about right wingers who are necessarily behavioral geneticists. Um, if anything, they believe like in these sort of like crude conceptions of what men and what men and women are just based on like the Bible or whatever it is. Right. But I wish there were a way that for, you know, again, I love the ideals, but I wish there were a way for a lot of people on the left to take the science seriously and to 
say that, or at least to think that there's, I mean, look, I know going back to like Francis Galton and social Darwinism, I understand there's that component there, but I just don't think that at this point that for the most part, like when we're talking about, again, something like behavioral genetics, um, social psychology, obviously too, I don't think that these people are necessarily sort of discounting the fact that, you know, there's so much probability and possibility within human beings. But I think they're saying like, look, this is just what it is. You're not born a blank slate. Because it's, again, it's interesting because on the left, you have on the one side, them saying, okay, well, you are a blank slate and you could just be whatever you want. But then science saying like, hey, this was debunked like decades ago. You are not a blank slate. That doesn't necessarily exist. Psychologists know it. Again, geneticists know it. But yet somehow it's sort of like politically speaking, it's taking us some time to get to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I even say like with all of the books that I have here, my dad was also a reader. And those are part of the gifts. When I would come home from school, there would be a new book. He would get two, he would get two copies of the same book. And then we would read to each other. I think our first book was treasure Island. It's one of my favorite memories. And, um, so now obviously I'm a bookworm and I've gone into academia now, is that natural or is that, or is that nurture? Is it, am I introverted? Like my dad, or we're both only children brought up in Southern California. We have a lot in common to uh, brought us to a similar path or was that all nurturing? But I would think that some of that just has to be inherent because I'm just, I can't even explain how I am drawn to reading. It doesn't feel like a choice. Or even when people would ask me, how did you choose philosophy? And I said, well, I did it. It's kind of like how if you taste chocolate and you like it, you didn't make that decision. It was just true. And that's how I felt about philosophy. Oh, you want to hear um, the one of the most kind of like prominent theories of like the acquisition or the desire for the, the acquisition of knowledge? Okay. Okay. So if you think about <laughs> it, right? So if let's say, you know, an anxiety, right? Or high levels or low levels or whatever of anxiety are for the most part inherited, right? If you think about the acquisition of knowledge, it's really just a way to quell a sense of uncertainty. So for the person who is the reader and wants to learn a ton about the world, chances are they're probably also highly anxious. So it's not that per se you inherited the idea or like the desire to be a reader per se, but it's more like you inherited the desire to learn about the world because like maybe you were a really anxious kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There is something, well, there is something about just that life is short and it's kind of, there's only so much time to learn and to experience things. And I can't really bear my time being wasted in mm -hmm. a different way than I think. So that's one of the reasons why I enjoy traveling and I enjoy reading. I just enjoy learning so much. Yeah. yeah and what then about, so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, what about introverted versus extrovert? Because this was on a, a podcast episode that Rudy and I did. And Rudy made a comment that made me laugh as I was listening to it. And we were talking with a an, uh, an former FBI agent who was talking about uh, the prison system. And uh, Rudy says, what's that? Uh, Jeffrey Cortez. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Rudy made a comment. So Rudy's extroverted. And Rudy made a comment. Everyone's biggest fear is going to prison. And I called him up and I said, you know, when I was a little girl and I first learned that there was such a thing as prison, I thought that sounded really nice. I thought you'd get a room to yourself and I could just sit on a bed and read and no one would bother me. And I was like, this sounds like heaven. And mm -hmm. so, but I was too young to really understand introverted or extroverted. Like I couldn't have been taught that. Right. So what about what do you think about this talk about introverted versus extroverts? Like, is there a biological basis to it or is it all nonsense and pop psychology? 
Yeah. So, okay. With introversion, extroversion, I mean, there's no, like, it's not dichotomous. So obviously what that means is that you don't, it's not, it doesn't exist just in the two spheres. So what happens is if you look at the big five, so extroversion is a part of the dimensions. And then you have this one dimension of extroversion, obviously low on extroversion pretty much is, you know, pure introversion if mm -hmm. that exists. Right. And then you have like high on extroversion, which is like where Rudy has, you know, somewhere, give or take somewhere up, up on that spectrum. Um, and, but what you see is that like with parents and their kids, their kids actually resemble them on the big five. So not always, obviously, and it's not exactly, it's not like a pure connection. So let me just be clear, but there are high correlations between kids and their parents and actually where they fall on these particular five spectrums. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I read the book quiet by, I think her mm. name is Susan. Susan Cain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I really, really liked it. And I have to tell you, being an introvert was, uh, was key for the pandemic for lockdown because all the introverts, <laughs> we did just fine. It was all the extroverts that were panicking. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so since we're obviously on the topic of philosophy and just sort of having these big questions and wanting to answer them. So from, so from your perspective, right, because philosophy is obviously, it's a hard thing to teach. It's a hard thing to understand. Uh, when you guys started the podcast, has it become easier for you to kind of translate that work for the students? Because I mean, a lot of what you do is translated to the general public. I think so. Honestly, having Rudy um, has, is so helpful because I think I'll use language that I don't even realize is just locked into uh, into the discipline that it doesn't make sense for everybody else. And so I think that I become a better teacher. But one of the other goals is to show my students what it's like to be a student. Mm -hmm. So they can actually see me or hear me on the podcast interviewing people. And even though I have a PhD, that I am in a position where I'm still continually learning and seeking out other experts in order to know more and to have some sort of a platform for sharing ideas. And that's been, I think, one of the most exciting things is to create the space for ideas that to be out there and to get a broader audience to participate in other people's intellectual journey in that way. And yeah. I wanted the students to get a sense of that because on the podcast, really, I mean, I'm not saying very much. It's more of just asking questions and kind of wanting to figure out the underscoring ideas for different people's professions and the implications. So the floor is theirs to really talk. And that's for my students to also have access to these experts. The students don't read as much as students did 20, 30, or actually any time before. But this other media version is another way for them to access materials for them to learn. So I think one of the mistakes people have made in education is to say that because students have a shorter attention span and they don't read as much, those things are true, but that doesn't mean that there's not a desire to learn more, that there's not some other avenue in order to get access to these ideas. So that's also another goal. Right. So, yeah, sorry, no, just I, I found, for example, that latest episode of the podcast, very interesting, right? So the FBI agent or a former FBI agent, I believe, um, you asked him a question, I believe it was, uh, it was about corruption. You asked, mm -hmm. can you be corrupt without necessarily intending corruption? Like, does that ever happen? Has anyone ever accidentally, has anyone done something that is objectively corrupt without necessarily intending it? Uh, whether it's maybe giving a gratuity, like a gift, or maybe something else, uh, maybe that they could have done. And like questions like that kind of stuck out to me, which I, I think it is important to, to ask things like that. And I could see how you, you're sort of in a position of a student in a way, when you ask these mm -hmm. questions, you know, to maybe someone in a, in a different field, you know, as far as law or 
FBI, you know, is concerned or, or, or the prison system, I believe was covered in that episode too. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and you have to be vulnerable too, which I don't know was always easy for me. Maybe part of it has to do with being a woman in a male dominated field where it really, you don't want to look stupid. I mean, I, I don't know. There seems to be more of a, more of a cost there for, for women. And so being on the podcast and interviewing experts and really sometimes having absolutely no idea, I just have a deficit of knowledge in their field, which makes me want to learn from them more. But there is a bit of a fear that I'm going to ask something that is a little bit dumb or obvious and getting over that vulnerability um, has also just been really helpful for my own personal growth, but I think also for the students to hear like, oh, sometimes, you know, <laughs> she has questions too. So you can't always just pretend to walk around like, you know, everything, but you have to have that humility. And that's like, goes back to what I was saying about Socrates. Like, I think that that's one of the most valuable lessons from Socrates is that there is um, just a joy for a curiosity for its own sake. And it's a good way to live. I'm with you. Yeah. For me, I relate to this hardcore. I, there have been guests on the show where I'm just like, I have nothing. I almost sometimes have nothing to say, but then mm -hmm. I, but I still, I try, I try to sort of let go of that sort of um, maybe imposter. Is that imposter yeah. syndrome? Yeah. Sort of in yeah. a way. I mean, technically if I'm already in the position of podcast host, like, Hey, act the part, you know, get, getting, get engaged and necessarily be nervous or afraid to ask somebody about something you don't necessarily know about right so i relate to that hardcore i do try to prepare uh, before shows maybe some questions as far as that goes just to be somewhat prepared but um i don't know he knows for a fact just from being with me there have been times where i've been completely <laughs> silent for most of an episode kind of more of in the earlier episodes but yeah yeah, yeah yeah so i think for like alan which i think a lot of people struggle with and i mean it makes a ton of sense is that like and i've told you this before but i think it's just worth saying on the episode uh is that you're actually supposed to do that you're supposed to ask basic questions because for the most part like people who are listening to this they're not going to be experts most academics do not have time to sit and listen to podcasts or material that they already know i mean it's just mm -hmm. not going to happen sure. so a lot of the people who are listening to this are either people who just like have a cursory interest in psychology uh, so not psychology just but just psychology and philosophy or um people who are let's say maybe students or sort of they're like you know kind of developing some interest in it or maybe a little bit more moderate but you usually don't have experts on it like that's why our guests come on because they want to kind of spread their information no, so yeah I'm so for you what i would always say and you know this is that ask questions like it's, no question is stupid man and if anything what it usually does is it brings it out of the guest so and again i'm assuming you found the same thing for your show too yeah, and I did. I will say that we we had an episode. It was with a cardiologist, and that's in the title of the episode. I'm not going to say what it was, but I did ask a question that was not not my best. Mm. <laughs> and I had let's just say I had made an, an error about basic anatomy, mm. and the guest was so was so sweet. He was. <laughs> when he looked at me and he said, "I think she's blushing," because we are actually in studio for this. Mm -hmm. um, and as I listened back to the episode, I can't even tell you how badly there was a part of me that wanted to edit it out. Just like, <laughs> I want to edit out the fact that I just asked something stupid. And it's so obvious that even the guest is like, she is blushing. And, but I had to step back and put my ego out of it. Is it kind of entertaining to hear? Yes, it was. It was a, it was a silly thing. And um, it also just made me very human, but it was, you know, was it funny? Yes. My error was funny. And so right. I kept it in and I, I guess that's important, especially in this day of social media, where everybody's constantly projecting their best self. 
that it's important to remind ourselves that we're human. We have errors, we have brain farts, all of that happens. And that's part of the joy in life. And that's what makes relationships possible. Also, when you said understanding, the more vulnerable you allow yourself to be, then the more understanding and grace, I think that you give to other people instead of trying to, you know, show, show perfection all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and you guys are going to love this, by the way. So you know what the data shows? So it's actually, if you're already really confident, and let's say you have credentials. So like, obviously, you know, Gwen, you would have a PhD. So if you already come from a place of confidence and you make a mistake, you're humanized. So vice versa though, right? So it's like, if you don't have credentials and you're not already kind of perceived as a confident person, let's say, you know, either people don't know you or whatever it is, then they form the quick judgment of, oh, this person is stupid. So if you already have the kind of history behind you where you're doing the podcast, people have heard you, they know who you are. They kind of know what your ideas are but sort of the complexity of what you can understand is they're not going to judge you for it. So it's actually the opposite. They'll be like, Oh, wow. We can actually like, she's not like superhuman. We can actually like talk to her maybe someday. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting how that works. All right. And then, so before we wrap up, what do you hope the message of your podcast, if there were sort of a general theme, what would you hope, what would you want people to pick up on the takeaway from it? I want people, I mean, as, as I've said before, I think to enjoy that process of thinking, uh, I really want to be part of making the world a good place. And uh, with the skill set that I have is that I'm a philosopher and I'm an introvert and I have an obese cat and that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> and how am I going to participate in the world being a better place? And I mean, as far as my own scholarship, I don't think I'm the best scholar, but I think that I do have a knack for noting when there are good ideas and really having a space where people can come on and share those ideas and participating in that journey. That's really what I want to get out. Like there was one book um, called The Gravity of Joy by Dr. Angela Gorell and we had her on the show. And after that episode, I got texts and emails, messages on Instagram by a handful of people who bought her book as a result of that show. And that felt incredible because it was, she deserved that. Her book was so good. I want everyone to read it. She deserved that. And to participate in that was just such a great feeling. So I guess what I want for people to get out of the show is that they can, I'm hoping it sparks curiosity in their own lives, where they also look at the people around them. They understand humility. They understand how to um, listen to experts. I think we're kind of losing that sense of expertise with the age of the internet, Mm. but to have a respect for knowledge and yeah, just a desire to learn more. And I hope it brightens somebody's day. I love it. I'm sure it does. All right, Alan, final questions for Gwen before we wrap up. Yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work and, and Rudy as well, uh, where, where could we find you both? Um, I think one of the best ways for both of us would be on Instagram, good is in the details pod. And we also have an email, good is in the details pod at gmail.com. And then on Twitter, I think it's just in the details I think it is. It is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. when I was trying to create it, I couldn't get good as in the details. I don't know why, but, um, but yeah, that's the best way to, to get in touch with us. And then of course, Rudy's got a ton of work on Forbes.com, which is very cool. And yeah. Unplug your blog too. You know, my blog. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think it's just prof. I like your, right. Mm -hmm. Oh, you do. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I read the one about, uh, unblocking writer's block. It's very good. Oh, I used to, I mean, I used to write on there a lot, but people don't do blogs as much anymore, but I still have it up there. I think it's just Prof Dolsky, right? At WordPress or something like that. 
<laughs> I believe so. We're definitely right. going to uh, put the link in the description. That oh, sure. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you. you. You got it. All right, Gwen, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. All right, have a good day. You, you too. too. We'll talk Take to you care. soon. All right. So first of all, that was awesome. Mm -hmm. And everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast at on Facebook, Instagram, uh, on Twitter, where at Seize underscore podcast. We're also on TikTok. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell hit the on bell. YouTube. Yep. And again, thanks so much for watching and see you next time.